Please note, this message contains some glitches in the audio. We apologize for these occurrences. Good morning, Sun West, and welcome back to Church at Home. It's great to be with you digitally. It's been great to be with a, a group of people as we gather on Sunday mornings at the Church at Home at Church group. And we are looking forward to regathering in person in some form coming up. Uh, as a staff, we've been meeting and planning about what that might look like in fall. And so please stay tuned uh, in the coming weeks as we roll out what phase one of a regathering might look like. Your feedback and conversation and input has been uh, so valuable as we discern and figure out what God is calling our church to. Uh, we know lots of churches are doing or responding in different ways in this season. And and we, and we that's awesome and we, we bless them. Uh, but we are uh, mostly concerned with what Jesus is calling us to do in, in, in this time as well. So we look forward to communicating about that in the coming weeks. And also in terms of uh, family news, we had some sad news as a church community, as a church family. And I, we use that word very intentionally because we do believe we are a, a faith family, that when we uh, come into relationship with Jesus, we actually come into family relationship with each other. We become brothers and sisters and we lost a dear sister last week. Uh, many of you will know Esther Henricks. And if you ever showed up in person at one of our physical gatherings, you were likely greeted by Esther. And she passed away last week. And uh, this is a great loss in our community. We loved Esther dearly. And in many ways, she embodied what Sun West was all about, to guide all people into a lifelong, authentic relationship with Jesus. And she welcomed and invited everybody, uh, no matter who they were, no matter what their story was, to be a part of this faith journey with us. She lived with vibrancy. She lived uh, with a heart of a worshiper. She loved Jesus so much. And we, uh, yeah, she will be missed. A, a few of you commented, or many of you were expressing thoughts over social media in the past week. Uh, just a couple of comments, even from our son Westers, that uh, I think embody how we feel. Uh, let me just share a couple. Esther, Esther, Purple, contagious smile, joy, 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 resilient laughter beyond measure, a friend to me, a friend to all others, humble servant, lover of Jesus, faith, hope, love, will be missed greatly, have fun dancing and singing and laughing with Jesus. Amen to that. Uh, another one of our Sunwest family uh, wrote this. Uh, Esther was a woman that exuded joy in spite of circumstance, loved seeing her genuine smile and heartfelt greeting every Sunday morning. Joyful for physical restoration now, but will be greatly missed. A reminder of how much I am missing our church family in physical form. And I think we can all say amen to that as well. Uh, peace be with you, Esther. And so, yeah, we, we celebrate Esther's life. We, we will miss you, Esther. And we look forward to, to the ultimate resurrection when we can be together again. It's my privilege, in light of that, this week and next week, to talk about the source of Esther's hope. Anybody who knew, knew Esther knew that she had a deep hope and a deep faith and a deep reason uh, for, her, for her joy that she lived with. And, and I believe the foundation of that, and I know the foundation of that, uh, was her faith in Jesus and what Jesus uh, did for us. And that is uh, the topic that we are going to talk about this week and then again next week as we work our way through Mark chapter uh, 15. So who are you? If I were to ask you who you were, you would probably give me an answer. You'd give me your name, your first name. Maybe you'd give me your last name. 
You might tell me your credentials, your education. Uh, you might tell me about your job, what you do for a living. You know, uh, I'm a pastor, I'm a carpenter, I'm a realtor. Uh, you might uh, tell me you're a husband or a wife or a daughter or a son or a father or mother. If you were to ask me, who am I? At various points in my life, I'd probably answer that question differently. In my, in my younger years, I'd say, you know, I'm a rock star or a wannabe rock star. I'm a musician. Or uh, if you go really, really young, I would, I would have said, I'm a baseball player. I'm a pitcher. And I know for those that know me now, uh, Matt Dick played baseball. Yes, I did play baseball. I did eventually see the light. And then I became a basketball player. I'm a basketball player. Uh, there's certain times in my life where I would tell, tell you I'm a failure uh, in, in many different ways. Or I'm a student, I'm a husband, I'm a dad, I'm a coach, I'm a pastor. These are all uh, descriptors that would tell you who I am. But my most honest answer, if you ask me who I am, uh, I would say I am Barabbas. I am Barabbas. And that's the, the title for the sermon this morning. And I'm going to explain why I think that is the most accurate statement uh, of who I am. Uh, Mark 15, 1 to 15 is where we're looking this morning. And, and so we have this interruption in the gospel narrative where Jesus has been journeying towards Jerusalem, towards the cross, and then we find this character, uh, Barabbas. Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John all mention him. And so it's a significant interruption and why is he mentioned in all four of the Gospels? Uh, we don't really know much about him except that he's a murderer, he's an insurrectionist, he's a rebel. Uh, why is he even mentioned? Why does he get put into the story? Uh, and I think there's a few reasons why. And so let's look at the text. And as, as soon as it was morning, the chief priests held the consultation with the elders and scribes and the whole council, and they bound Jesus and led him away and delivered him over to Pilate. And so this phrase, it was morning, uh, it's referring to the fourth watch of the night. And so if you've been paying attention in the last few weeks, you'll know uh, that the Roman uh, world kind of separated uh, the night into four different segments, the four watches. Uh, 9 p.m. Uh, was the first watch, and that's referred to uh, as the evening in chapter 14, verse 17, where Judas betrays Jesus. And in every watch of the night, we see some kind of form of unfaithfulness contrasted with the faithfulness of Jesus. So we see that Judas is unfaithful as a disciple, uh, and Jesus remains faithful, even though he's been betrayed and his trust has been broken by his friend. Uh, that is in the first watch. In the second watch, uh, which is referred to as, as midnight, as 12 a.m., the disciples fall asleep. His, his friends fall asleep when he needed them most, when he needed their support, their encouragement, their prayers. Uh, and they didn't show up. They didn't deliver. And Jesus still remains faithful to the Father in the garden. We know he's praying. He's pouring out his heart. And God doesn't even answer the prayers in the way that Jesus maybe would have hoped or would liked. But he remains faithful to the path that God the Father was calling him to. In the third watch of the night, uh, the time when the rooster crows, we see that this is the moment of Peter's denial. And Peter was unfaithful. You know, one of the, uh, the, the, he was the most vocal disciple, the one who said, you know, I'll, I'll drop everything and follow you, Jesus. In the moment, uh, in the third watch of the night, he failed. He denied Jesus. He was tempted to fit in with the crowd and to choose comfort uh, over following Jesus, over commitment. Uh, and we find himself warming himself by the fire instead of uh, following Jesus all the way to the cross. 
And in contrast to that, we see Jesus, who is abandoned, who is alone, who is isolated, uh, and he still remains faithful uh, to what the Father, uh, where the Father was leading him. And then we find the fourth watch of the night, and that's where we pick up this part of the story, where Jesus, in the morning, uh, in the fourth watch, finds himself before government authorities, before Pilate, in front of the crowds, uh, being put on trial. And will he remain faithful, uh, even under the oppression and persecution that is about to happen to him? So it was morning. It was the fourth watch. And the chief priests held a consultation with the elders and scribes and the whole council, and they bound Jesus and led him away and delivered him over to Pilate. And as soon as it was... Oh, so... Uh, (laughs) delivered him over. Uh, And so they bound Jesus and led him away and delivered him over. And the reason I wanted to highlight that phrase is because that phrase, delivered him over, as it says in the ESV or in the NIV translation, it uses the phrase, handed him over. Uh, This phrase is used throughout Mark. And something fascinating happens every time this phrase is used. Uh, in, Je- in Mark chapter 1, Jesus or John the Baptist was handed over and it was this moment where the plot changes and the plot looks like it's going in the opposite direction uh, that we would expect the, the kingdom of God story to go. So the Messiah is coming, the kingdom's coming, and then there's this twist and there's this negative turn in the plot or in the story. And John the Baptist in, in chapter 1 was preparing the way of the Lord and he was handed over and then he would uh, eventually be murdered. And then we see that God handed Jesus over into human hands in chapter 9, verse 31. You can read about it there. And then he was, Jesus was handed over into sinners' hands in 1441. And then these, we'll see this passing on that Jesus keeps being handed over. And every time Jesus is handed over, it's a negative turn in the story. He goes from being handed over to religious leaders to being handed over to the crowd to being handed over to Pilate. And then Pilate eventually hands him over to the executioners. And so this phrase, paradidomai, is used every single time, this handing over. And if we want to go even further, Paul in the New Testament uses this phrase when he's referring to uh, negative turns even in our stories, uh, places of judgment where we are handed over. But yet every time this phrase is used, handed over, On the outside, looking in, it looks like it's a negative turn. It looks like God is losing. It looks like the kingdom of God is is weak. It doesn't deliver on the promise. And yet every time there's a handing over, there's a negative turn, it progresses the advancement of God's kingdom. It is this uh, paradox moment where we see the gospel at work, where we see God's power and sovereignty at work, that even in the midst of terrible human tragedy and choices that God is still at work redeeming and bringing about good even when we look around us and say what good could come of this and maybe even in there there's a encouragement for us Um, you know uh, we talked about you know a tragedy in our faith family but we know that there's there's all sorts of disappointments that have been happening on so many levels here in 2020 and we look around and say what good could come of this Yet we look historically and we know that every time in history that it looks like there's a negative turn, we have a gracious, powerful, sovereign, redemptive God that can actually bring about good even when we don't see a way that good could come. Uh, and so we're reminded of this right in the story here that Jesus is handed over. It's looking 
Uh, it's looking grim. It's not looking like the way people expected, yet God is up to something and he's advancing his kingdom and his plans even though Pilate and others are actually handing him over uh, and bringing him towards the cross. So in verse 2, the story continues. Pilate asked him, Are you the king of the Jews? And he answered him, You have said so. I don't know what kind of answer that is, but, but Jesus neither denies or affirms. He just kind of lets the story kind of unfold. And the chief priests accused him of many things. And Pilate again asked him, Have you no answers to make? See how many charges they bring against you. But Jesus made no further answer so that Pilate was amazed. Now, at the feast, he, he used to release for them one prisoner for whom they asked, and among the rebels in prison who had committed murder, the, excuse me, in the insurrection, there was a man called Barabbas. So, uh, the feast, which feast is happening right now? Well, this is the Passover feast. And at Passover, thousands of lambs are handed over uh, to, uh, by sinners, by the, the Jewish people, to uh, make atonement, to make right, uh, them before God as a substitutionary offering, substitutionary death. And we need to remind ourselves where this Passover practice and feast came from to, to understand what's happening here in the story and what Mark is wanting us to see. And so the Passover is something uh, that in, in the Old Testament story where the Israelites were oppressed for 400 years in Egypt, uh, they were slaves. Uh, and Pharaoh uh, wouldn't listen to Moses as Moses went and said, uh, Pharaoh, you got to let God's people go. And so God forced Pharaoh's hand. God sent plagues. And plague after plague after plague, Pharaoh still wouldn't listen. So God sends this final plague uh, where the firstborn in every household will die unless there is blood of a lamb on the doorpost of the home. And it says the angel of death passed over every house that had blood on the doorpost. And so when Jesus shows up at the scene in the Gospel of Mark, if you remember, John the Baptist says, Behold, here comes the one who will take away the sins of the world. This is Passover language. And here we find at the end of the story, Mark 15, we're at this Passover feast. It's a symbolic remembrance of the gracious act of God, what God has done in the past. But it's also looking forward to what God is ultimately going to do um, in the person of Jesus. And it says that Pilate annually releases one prisoner during uh, this Passover time. Uh, so Pilate appeases the crowd. He will release a prisoner. Uh, and so Pilate in this situation hopes that they're going to pick Jesus because uh, we see in the Gospels that Pilate looks at Jesus and he doesn't really see an obvious reason why Jesus would have to be uh, condemned, why he'd have to be crucified. Um, but he doesn't have much of a spine and he's playing this political game and trying to appease the crowds and the religious Jewish leaders. And, uh, and so he gives them an option hoping that they were going to give him an easy way out, but they, choose, they don't choose Jesus. And so the crowd came up and began to ask Pilate to do as he usually did for them. And he answered them saying, Do you want me to release for you the king of the Jews? For he perceived that it was out of envy that the chief priest delivered him up, but the chief priest stirred up the crowd to have him release for them Barabbas instead. And we know from uh, the Gospel of Matthew uh, that, that Barabbas, uh, his first name was also Jesus. And so we, ha- we have this situation where Pilate is saying, which Jesus do you want? Jesus Barabbas or Jesus the Messiah? Choose which one you want to, to, to be free. 
I will release one of these prisoners from death row. You decide which Jesus do you want. And so he stands on the stage presenting Jesus Barabbas or Jesus Messiah. What are they going to choose? And so Pilate again said to them, Then what shall we do with the man you call the king of the Jews? And they cried out again, Crucify him. I mean, this is blasphemy. This has gone too far. There's no comparison between this insurrectionist, this rebel, this murderer, and Jesus. I mean, what has Jesus done? He's, he's healed people. He's, he's helped the lame walk. He's helped the blind to see. He's, he's loved people that were on the fringes of society. He's, he's creating uh, a type of community and kingdom that, uh, that everybody can be a part of. And so you compare the two and you're like, why? Why would they choose Jesus Messiah over Jesus Barabbas? Barabbas deserves the chains. He deserves the crucifixion. Jesus has only healed, restored, delivered, set free, opened blind eyes and deaf ears, healed the lepers. Like this is the story of Jesus and the kingdom that we've seen. But we see that the reason why this happened is because the, the religious leaders were envious of, what, of the popularity and following that Jesus had. Uh, and so... The religious leaders, the Roman authorities, they're now working together because they have a common enemy and agenda uh, with Jesus. So they say, we want Barabbas, give us Barabbas, crucify Jesus the Messiah. So Pilate, and we can kind of see his cowardly uh, colors here, wishing to satisfy the crowds, release for them Barabbas. And having scourged Jesus, he delivered him to be crucified. So this is the story of Barabbas, verse 1 to 15. And I think this story really encapsulates the gospel message uh, in a very succinct way. And what is the gospel? What is the gospel actually responding to? And the gospel means good news, what Jesus has done. And why is that good news? Well, uh, for a long time in our world, uh, there's, been, uh, there's been a narrative uh, that the meaning of life is to be good, is to be right. And, and for a long time, we understood the gospel as dealing with our guilt in it. So Jesus comes and he deals with our guilt, he deals with our judgment. Uh, and there was a sense of uh, absolute truth or morality in the Western world. And so people believed in some level of uniform morality and truth. And so there was a sense that when we didn't achieve that, that we were guilty and that we weren't good. And so Jesus takes on our guilt. He takes on our judgment and he forgives you and he accepts you. And that is so, so true that Jesus responds to our lack of ability to be right and to be good and takes our place like he took Barabbas's place. Barabbas, who deserved judgment because of his badness, uh, actually is forgiven. And Jesus takes the judgment that Barabbas deserved. And that's true. But the problem is, in our post-modern, post-enlightenment culture, truth and morality have become subjective. People choose their own truth. And so, even as we talk about this aspect of the gospel, for many of you, you actually don't feel guilty. Which... I think it's a little bit of a problem because it, it actually shows us that we've moved away from a sense of absolute truth or absolute morality, that there is a standard that God has called us to. And as we lose sight of that in our postmodern, post-enlightenment, post-truth kind of world, we are actually experiencing less guilt.
and don't understand uh, this part of the depth of the gospel in a way that maybe uh, we used to. But the gospel responds to more than that as well. The narrative actually changed over time, that the meaning of life is not necessarily to be good, but to be free. And because of that, rules, religion, structures, these things just put you in a cage to actually prevent you from being, being free. They were just human constructs. Guilt is a construct from religious thought. And so if we could get rid of religious thought, if we get rid of rules, that means that we could finally be free. And so as we move from a modern world into a postmodern world, uh, and people believe this kind of message of uh, get rid of um, all the all the restrictions that we have so we can ultimately be free, we found, and I believe that you will find, if this is the narrative that you've believed, that you're not as free as you think. That whatever you look to to find freedom, whether that was status, whether that was money, whether that was you know certain life goals, or whether that was a you know a certain way of life, or having a family, or having a job, or uh, you know maybe you accomplished all your dreams, and you will find that you are never as free as you think. You will find that you just become slave to a new kind of God, and this is what the Bible refers to as idolatry. And idolatry tells us that uh, whatever we make the main thing, we actually become a slave and we serve that main thing. And the gospel, the story of God shows us that Jesus is the only king, the only master, the only Lord that will actually truly satisfy you. And if you fail to follow him, he's also the one master that will continue to forgive you and bring you back. And so maybe you've believed this, this narrative and culture, that the, the purpose of life is to find ultimate freedom and you've been pursuing that, but you don't feel free. You feel like you're in change. Maybe you've been caught in addictive cycles. Maybe you've been caught with deep feelings of emptiness and longing and realizing that there's nothing in this world that has satisfied uh, this desire to be free. But here's the thing, even that narrative, I mean, that's becoming even an older narrative in our culture, and our culture is changing uh, narratives. And we are in the middle of a, a new narrative that is focusing on identity. And today that narrative might say the meaning of life is to be true to yourself. It's all about creating your own self, creating identity, figuring out who you are, creating myself, yourself. And we find that when we do that, it's a lot of work. It's a lot of pressure. And this is a never-ending, exhausting project. If you are a young adult, if you are in your 20s, if you are in your teens, you know this. You know that you have been working hard at creating and projecting a certain identity and image, and it takes a lot of work, and it takes a lot of maintenance. You can see it online. You can see that people will just scream at one another and lose it on one another if you don't support their identity and what they are projecting because you're rejecting them. But I believe that in Christ, we get the one identity that is received and not achieved. In Christ, we get the identity that is received and not achieved. See, Jesus lost his glory, his power, his privilege. This is Philippians chapter 2. Uh, he did not consider equality with God something to be the of nature of a slave, of a servant. And so Jesus left his glory, power, privilege, died on the cross in my place. And when we start to realize what Jesus has done, the ups and downs of my performance actually stop dictating my identity and my value. In our world right now, identity 
is performance. It is work. What you project, what what you can get others to believe about you. Maybe in spite of what you believe about yourself. So the identity for Christ, again, is received and it's not achieved. And the identity that Jesus gives us actually doesn't exclude. It's inclusive. And if you pay attention in our culture, if you have the ISSC, you will see that people who have an insecure identity that are trying to create their own identity start differentiating themselves from others. And in the end, we actually have a more polarized and fragmented and broken world than we had before. When your identity is differentiation, it actually results in fragmentation. Jesus is calling us to something beyond that. And so whether we've committed a wrong and we're guilty, which we have and we are, whether we've trusted in wrong things for our own freedom and liberation, which I think we all have, or whether we've looked at the wrong sources to name us and tell us our identity, which we have, the Bible calls all of these things sin. I know this isn't a popular word, but sin takes on many, many forms. We've missed the mark. We, we are guilty. We are not free. We are not who we were created to be or living out the purpose that we were created for. I think when we take an honest look at our story, we can identify that and we can say that that is true. And this is the Barabbas story. And this is not just the Barabbas story, this is the human story. But this is the gospel story, summarized in Romans 5, verse 8, that God demonstrates his own love for us in this, that while we were still sinners, while we were guilty, while we were in chains, while we were looking for everything in this world to give us a name and a sense of identity, Christ died for us. This is the gospel story. This is the human story. And this is the Barabbas story. Now, the name Barabbas. I don't know if you remember a few weeks back in Mark chapter 10, we talked about a guy named Bartimaeus. And you might remember that that was a, Mark was playing with a name there to help us, help us see something beyond what we were just reading on the text, that Bar means son, right? And Timaeus meant honor. And Bartimaeus, the blind guy, was being lifted up as an example of a son of honor. But what would the name Barabbas mean? Well, you know the name Bar, the, uh, that prefix means son. Uh, what does Abbas mean? Or what does Abba mean? You know, that might sound familiar to you. Barabbas means son of the father. And so when I began this morning and I said, the truest thing I can say about myself is I am Barabbas, that is true on two levels. I am a sinner, broken. I'm guilty. I am not as free as I could be or should be. I've looked to things in this world to give me a sense of value and purpose beyond what God has called me to in the name that he wants to give me. But I am also a child of the Father. I am both. I'm in the family of God not because of my goodness or my rightness, but I'm in the family of God because of Jesus' rightness and what he's done for me. I'm not free because I've worked so hard to free myself, but I'm free because Jesus took my place as a slave and has released me to be free. I'm not, I haven't worked so hard to figure out who I am out there, but I realize 
who God has called me to be in here. And that I'm not in the family of God because of what I've done. I'm in the family of God because I've been reborn because of what God has done in my life. And that Jesus invites all people to be in God's family. Not because of what you've done, but because of what he's done. I am Barabbas. I am both. I am both broken and restored. I am both in chains and free. This is the human story. And this is God's redemptive story that he is rewriting in our world and in our lives to those who choose to give their lives to Jesus and follow him. And here's what it means. It means I am not primarily my vocation. I am not primarily my status. I'm not primarily my income. I'm not primarily my ethnicity. I am not primarily my gender. I am not primarily my sexual orientation. I am not primarily my past failures, and I'm not primarily my past successes. I am primarily Barabbas. I am God's son. Everything else in my life is subversive to that. And so when Jesus becomes my Savior, my friend, my King, my Lord, everything else in my life actually becomes subject to Him. Now, I have three boys, and when, and when Lisa and I each uh, had our boys, they were given in the hospital this bracelet or this anklet, uh, and on it, it had their name. It, it, it told them, it said what their name was, it said whose they were, uh, before they ever did anything, before they spoke anything, before they made any kind of decisions, before they even went to the bathroom, it was put on them. And nothing is going to change that. No matter what decisions my three boys, Joel, Luke, or Silas make, nothing is going to change the name that's on their bracelet and whose they are. And I believe that each of us has been given a hospital bracelet. Each of us has been given a bracelet, and on that bracelet it says, I am Barabbas. But unlike the babies in the hospital, we have to choose to put that on our own ankles, so to speak. And to put that on your own ankle means that you have to actually own both parts of that name. You have to recognize that uh, where we failed, where we're broken, where we identify with Barabbas, the rebel, the sinner, the one who's on trial, the one who needs saving. I am Barabbas. But we also recognize that Jesus came to take our place and that we have become a son of the Father, a daughter of the Father. We've become part of the family of God, not based on our own merits, our own goodness, but, be, but based on what Jesus has done for us. So I am Barabbas. And so I choose to put that name on myself. I choose to reorient reorient and reorganize my whole life over the identity of me being God's son. I believe the invitation is for every person to do that. And that's why the mission at SunWest is to guide all people into a lifelong authentic relationship with Jesus because we believe that's God's invitation for all people and it's only in that place that we find uh, that we are free, that we are forgiven, that we become who we were created to be. In 1 John chapter 3, it says, See what great love the Father has lavished on us that we should be called the children of God. And that is what we are. The reason the world does not know us is that it did not know Him. Dear friends, now we are children of God and what we will be has not yet been made known. But we know that when Christ appears, we shall be like Him for we shall see Him as He is. And so in 1 John, it's describing this exchange, that Jesus became like one of us so we could become like him. 
that we can become children of God. And so I don't know your story. I don't know the specifics of all your stories. But I do know that the invitation is for you to become Barabbas. Uh, I do know that your story is probably similar to my story where we've uh, where we've sinned, where we've looked to the wrong things for freedom, where we've made mistakes, where we've uh, looked for other things or other people or things in this world to name us and give us significance and purpose. And Jesus is inviting us beyond that to say, I created you to be in the family of God. Would you receive that name? Would you receive that invitation? If you uh, recognize your need for Jesus to rescue, to save, just like Barabbas needed that to happen. The beginning of that is very simple. It is a reorientation of your life around the the lordship of Jesus, making him the first thing in your life. It says in Matthew 6, seek first the kingdom of God, and everything everything you need will actually be given to you when you reorient your life. Not necessarily everything you want, but everything in your heart's desire that you need, God gives to you when we reorient our lives with Jesus as our King. So I invite you to to pray with me as we conclude. And if you've never prayed a prayer like this before, you can pray this and begin this journey uh, as Barabbas, wherever you are, whatever your story is. So Father, we thank you for your love for us. John 3.16 says, God so loved the world that he sent his only son. We thank you that you sent Jesus. Lord, we thank you that Jesus took the place of Barabbas. And Lord, we know that as he did that, he didn't just take Barabbas' place, but you were showing us symbolically that he was taking our place. That he was actually taking the cross upon himself when Barabbas deserved the cross, that he was taking judgment when Barabbas deserved judgment, that he was extending forgiveness. Lord, we thank you that he was freeing Barabbas. Lord, we recognize that that we have chains, we have addictions, that we have things that we are bound up by. And Lord, we just give you our lives again. I give you my life again. Lord, would you bring ever-increasing freedom in our lives? Lord, we thank you that you name us. And Lord, I pray that you would speak to each person listening, that they would hear you calling them to come into the family of God, to be a son of God, to be a daughter of God. And may they reorient their entire life out of that good news that they are your child. May we live our lives in light of that. And so we thank you for what what you've done. We thank you for what you're doing. And we thank you for the hope that we have. In Jesus' name, amen. And as we've been doing each week, I just want to leave you with a few going deeper questions. Just got two main questions uh, this morning. The first one, every time Mark uses the phrase, phrase delivered him over or handed over, it looks like God's plan is moving backwards. Yet these are the moments where God moves his purposes forward. What hope does this give you when you look at our world right now? And what hope does this give you personally in your life uh, when you look at your own life? Secondly, the gospel responds to our guilt. It responds to our lack of freedom. It responds to our identity crisis. When looking at those three narratives in our culture, which one are you most eager for Jesus to satisfy? The gospel is holistic. 
a response to our guilt, a response to our freedom, a response to our identity crisis. But often there's a felt need that we might have, depending on which world narrative that you've been caught up in. Which one are you most desperate for Jesus to satisfy to meet? And I believe that he wants to meet you there, that he wants to give you forgiveness, that he wants to give you freedom, that he uh, wants to give you a new name and a new source of identity, save you from the hard work of coming up with that on your own uh, because you were never intended to. So I hope that these questions help you to dive deeper. I hope that you will experience the joy of what it means to be Barabbas, to acknowledge where we've fallen short, but yet have that acknowledgement meant with the grace and sufficiency of the gospel where Jesus meets us in our need, where he names us, where he forgives us, where he sets us free, and then allows us to live a life of purpose and following him. So may that be your story too. We look forward to seeing you again uh, next week where we continue Mark chapter 15. 